Amen. Um, several years ago, I was a youth pastor in Prince Rupert, B.C., and one of our usual practices this time of year is that we would go trick-or-treating for the food bank. Um, and so the Salvation Army ran the food bank there, and so we'd give them as much food as we could. And so we would organize it, and we'd dress up in our costumes, and we'd go door-to-door and knock and say, hello, uh, we're from Prince Rupert Fellowship, and we're canvassing for the food bank, wondering if you'd like to donate any non-perishable items. And we'd go door-to-door doing this. And so we'd split up in all these different groups. In my group, we had myself and six high schoolers, and we're going down this street, and we're knocking on the doors of, of very humble townhouses. And so I'm just kind of driving on the street, and they'd kind of put all the food into my car. And as I'm doing this, all of a sudden there's this one girl and she comes about three feet out of this door and she starts waving all of us over. And I'm going, what's going on here? And so we all kind of go running up to her and I go, what's going on? And she goes, yeah, this guy inside, uh, he said, get all your friends and take all my food. And I go, really? And he goes, are, I go, are you sure? And she goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, I want you to take all my food. And I go, uh, okay. So I walk into this townhouse and my kids are just like unloading his pantry, just unloading everything. And he's there directing traffic and he's going, that's right, take it all. I think there's some more food over there in that cupboard. And as he's directing, I'm looking around his place and it's so sparsely furnished. And like over here, he has this couch that was hand me down from like the 70s. And he's got like a 13 inch TV and he's using this crate as a coffee table. And I'm kind of like, I'm going, and so I go, listen, are you sure about this? Because I don't feel right about taking all your food. And the guy looks at me and he smiles and he says, that food bank saved my life once. They changed the way I view things. This weekend we're continuing on in our teaching series which we have entitled, A Transformed Way of Living where we have been looking at what the book of Acts has to say about this life of faith. This life with Jesus, empowered by the Spirit, doesn't lead to a change in just our convictions or just our theology, but instead results in a change of action where the Spirit of Christ transforms the very way we live life. And so this weekend, we are again seeking to understand how this good news impacts the way we both think and live. And so if you have a Bible, again, you can keep your finger there in Acts chapter 2. Our narrative today is the conclusion to Luke's account of Pentecost. And so as a form of review, I just want to quickly set the scene for you. And first, let me start by reminding you that though this is our fourth weekend discussing the Pentecost story, the events for which we've been discussing the last month all happened within just a few short hours of one another. And so I think we should just keep that in mind. So anyways, here's the context. On Passover weekend, Jesus is crucified and then rises three days later, and then spends the next 40 days proving to his followers that he is alive, teaching them about the kingdom of heaven, and promising them that within just a few short days, they would be baptized by the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus ascended and left them. But 10 days later, the Holy Spirit descends on the believers on the morning of Pentecost, and immediately Jesus' 120 followers begin to share the gospel message in languages they have never learnt. And some in Jerusalem were filled with wonder and began asking, what does this mean? While others were kind of saying, whatever, they're just drunk. And into this scene comes Peter, the spokesman for the disciples, and he declares to the crowd the good news, the good news that the Holy Spirit's arrival had been prophesied in the Hebrew Scriptures, and that more than that, what they were now seeing and hearing proves that Jesus was and is the promised Jewish Messiah. And then Peter concludes this message with this summary statement in Acts chapter 2, verse 36. And this is how he concludes his message. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. 
which then leads us to our passage today, the conclusion of the Pentecost story. Again, part one was the event itself, the outpouring of the Spirit. Part two, Peter's speech to the crowds. And now part three, the crowd's response. And the crowd's response begins in verse 37. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? After this Jewish crowd heard that they had rejected their promised Messiah and that they even had a hand in his death, we read that they were cut to the heart. This Greek expression here appears only here in the entire New Testament, and it refers to a sharp pain with uh, deep emotion. Some other translations read, they were acutely distressed or they were pierced to the heart. And the point is that suddenly they recognize their need, that suddenly they recognize that in crucifying their long-awaited Messiah, they have rejected their only hope of salvation. And the recognition of this awful truth causes them to become conscience-stricken and remorseful. The Spirit of God, as as, as only he can, has convicted them of their wrong. And so in humility, the convicted ones in the crowd cry out, brothers, what should we do? Brothers, our fellow followers of Yahweh, what now can we possibly do to reverse this wrong? And in response, Peter gives them a message of hope, a message of hope. For Peter knew exactly how they were feeling. For it was Peter who just six weeks earlier had turned his back on Jesus and publicly denied his Savior. And so quickly turn with me to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. We're just going to try to get into the mind of Peter a little bit here. Luke chapter 22, I'll begin in verse 60. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. If there's anyone who ever felt cut to the heart, it was Peter. Peter knew conviction, but more than that, Peter knew God's grace and forgiveness, and Peter knew what was required to walk in the newness of life with his Savior. And so this is his response beginning in verse 38. Verse 38 of Acts 2. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of of the Holy Spirit. In response to their question, what shall we do, Peter gives these conscience-stricken Israelites a roadmap of what reunion with Christ looks like. Now, I'm sure that Christ, or I'm sure that, well, I'm sure that Clyde, I was going to say, not quite the same, I'm sure that Clyde could spend the next month kind of dissecting this passage over and over again, but I just want to spend the rest of our time today highlighting four things, four things about what reunion with Christ is. And so first, Reunion with Christ requires us to repent. Reunion with Christ requires us to repent. In May 2002, a 21-year-old man named Armando Salguero from Albuquerque, New Mexico, decided that he'd had enough of living in want and that he deserved a new car with the best stereo system around. And so he went out around town kind of scoping out where he could find this, and he found this new Acura with, like, the best stereo system in town. So the next time he saw this new Acura Driving down the street, he pulled out a gun, forced the three passengers out, and got into his new car and drove off. And so he thought this was a pretty good plan. It had gone well. But later that very same day, he began to be troubled. And so Salguero, he called up the owner. 
and said, listen, I don't want there to be hard feelings. <laughs> True story. Listen, I don't want there to be hard feelings, but hey, how do you hook up the amp? <laughs> True story. So <laughs> the owner had caller ID, gave it to the cops, they tracked him down, arrested him that night. In case you're wondering, that's not repentance. That's not smart, that's not cut to the heart, that's not repentance. Okay, it's none of that. Now, generally in our culture, repentance is equated to being remorseful. I'm repentant, I'm remorseful, I have regret, and so I say I'm sorry. And that's a great start, but biblical repentance is so much more than that. The Greek term translated here, repent, is more than just changing one's mind. Instead, it has to do with a change of direction or a spiritual about face. To repent is to turn away from a previous way of life and turn 180 degrees towards full allegiance in Jesus. Repentance is Jonah turning and going back to Nineveh. Repentance is the prodigal son turning and going back to his father's home. As one author put it, repentance is a radical reorientation of life around Jesus. Does that describe us? Has my life been reoriented around who Jesus is? Several years ago when I was going to Bible school in BC, I took a world religions class. And for that class, on Saturdays, we would go each Saturday to a different temple and kind of visit it and learn about their beliefs and their faith. And so this one Saturday, we went to a Hare Krishna temple. And of all the temples and place of worship that we visited, I had the most respect for the devotion of the Hare Krishnas. And so our hosts that morning uh, all lived at the temple itself, and this was kind of their typical day, is they would get up at 4 a.m., and they would uh, awake their idols uh, from bed, and then they would give them a ceremonial washing. And then they would take the idols, and they would put them on their, I guess, idol stand, and then they would go and make a special breakfast and take it and put it before the idols as an offering to them. Then starting at 5 a.m., they would begin to start chanting. And they had this mantra of 16 words that they would repeat over and over again. And they said, depending on you know, how inspired they were that morning, it would take somewhere between two to three hours. For two to three hours, they would be on their knees before the idols, chanting this mantra over and over and over again. And then, after that was done, at you know, seven or eight o'clock, then they would go on for the rest of their day, and whether that was work or whatever that entailed. And that's how these guys live. And so they shared us how they practice their faith. And then um, after that, they, they opened it up to questions. Uh, and so my class had many questions. And so they're asking questions. But we had this one guy in our class who had uh, what you call a prickly personality. And so he starts asking questions. And the more questions he asks, the more obnoxious and insulting they're getting. And at, originally our hosts... We're, we're being very gracious with him. But finally, one of the hosts got sick of him, and I don't blame him, and he got sick of him, and he responded, oh yeah? I've met some of you Christians before, and you spout all the right words, and you think you've got your theology all figured out, but it hasn't changed your life one bit. What kind of faith is that? And like the air just left the room. And I remember sitting there thinking, that is a great rebuke. That's a great rebuke, and it's a great question. And I really think that is a question that Peter would agree with because that is not the kind of faith, that is not the repentant life that Peter was speaking of here. To repent is to make a decision that changes the total direction of one's life. There's a complete change in one's thinking. There's a complete change in one's actions. 
And we see this truth expressed also later on by the Apostle Paul. So you can quickly turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Let me quickly uh, set the context for you here. Paul establishes a church in Corinth in about AD 50, and over the following years sent a series of letters to this church. Now, Corinth was a port city, and it was known for its corruption and immorality. And at times, the church there struggled with these environmental factors. And so at some point, Paul sent a letter, now lost, which scholars refer to as the severe letter, where Paul warned the church of their need to repent. And to Paul's great joy, the majority of the Corinthian church did repent. And so Paul wrote them another letter, the book we now call 2 Corinthians, in response as a letter of thanksgiving. And so the verses I'm going to read, beginning in verse 9, are really kind of a summary of their repentance. And this is what it reads. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 9. I rejoice, not because you're grieved, and he's talking here about being grieved by his own letter. I rejoice, not because you were grieved, because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief. And again, he's talking about this understanding of being cut to the heart. Verse 10, for godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. See what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. Also, what eagerness to clear yourselves. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in this matter. Again, to repent is to turn away from a previous way of life and turn 180 degrees towards full allegiance to Jesus. And so like the Corinthians did, Peter is telling his convicted listeners to change directions. Change directions from the attitudes that cause them to reject Jesus and turn back to God through Jesus. Reunion with Christ first starts, first requires us to repent. I'm going to read verse 38 again. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. A second thing I'd like to highlight here is the call on our lives to be baptized in the name of Jesus. The call to be baptized. Now, let me just quickly say, if you want to know more about baptism or if you want to know how uh, we at Southview view baptism or you're interested in getting baptized, let me just direct you to our website, www.southviewchurch.com. On the home page, just click on the baptism box and there you'll find a message on baptism by Rob Penner that he gave about a year ago. And there'll also be other info on what baptism at Southview looks like. If you're interested, I think it'd be a good resource for you. Anyways, in case you weren't here last year when Robbie preached, uh, let me briefly summarize how we view baptism at Southview. We view baptism as a sign representing all that Christ has accomplished for us. And specifically, three things here. First, it's a visual symbol of our new identity, where we have been set free from sin and declared a child of God. Second, it's a visual symbol of our new obedience, or what we might call our new repentance, where we have turned from our old ways to follow Jesus. And third, it's a visual symbol of the new presence of the Spirit, where we live this new life of faith through the power of the Holy Spirit. Essentially, baptism is an outward act which represents everything that Peter is teaching here in verse 38. Now, perhaps you're here thinking, well, that, that's fine, but why baptism here? Like, is Peter saying that baptism is necessary for salvation? No. 
No, Peter's not saying that. But Peter is emphasizing that this life of faith is to be lived publicly in community. One's turning to Christ is not just a private matter that's okay to keep to ourselves. Instead, our allegiance to Christ is to be cultivated and encouraged in the community of faith so that then we can go forth and share the truth that God loves sinners and wants to heal us through Jesus. And baptism here is this outward statement of where my allegiance is. Baptism forces me to declare what my choice is. Now you need to know that in Judaism, baptism was a sign reserved only for Gentile converts because it was symbolized the break with their Gentile past, the kind of washing away of their defilement. Those of Jewish descent weren't ushered into the faith community through baptism. Only unbelieving Gentiles were required to be baptized. So when Peter asks his Jewish listeners to be baptized, he's asking for a clear public sign of their repentance. And many in the crowd that day would have been totally offended by this request. Many in the crowd that day would have felt that submitting to baptism was humiliating. But Peter is asking for each one to be baptized in order to express a personal, visible turning to Jesus. Peter is asking them, are you willing to repent? Are you willing to turn allegiance to Jesus? And are you willing to do this publicly? So are we willing? Reunion with Christ requires us to repent, calls us to be baptized, and third, offers us the gift of the Holy Spirit. Again, verse 38. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter asked, are you willing to turn in allegiance to Christ? Because if you are, then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In the book of Acts, the word gift is referenced only four times. But all four are referring to the giving of the Holy Spirit to those who respond in faith. At the core of the good news of Jesus Christ is this gift of the Holy Spirit. For it is the Spirit that is the enablement of this new life of faith. So if you are here today... And I want to be clear, if you are here today and all you've heard is, I need to turn and repent and now work really hard to live out this allegiance. If that's what you've heard me say, then I have done a terrible job of explaining the gospel to you because that is not the message. It is the person of the Holy Spirit who is the power source which makes this new life in Christ possible. Now, we've talked a lot about the Holy Spirit over the past year, uh, but just so that we're all on the same page, I'm just going to quickly review a few things, okay? So first, the Holy Spirit is not just a force, but God himself, the third person of the Trinity who's existed eternally. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was given to a specific person at a specific time for a specific purpose. It was always a temporary feeling. But now in repentance in Jesus, the person of the Holy Spirit indwells us permanently. And again, this new life in the Spirit was just introduced hours earlier at Pentecost, and this timing is significant. It's significant because in New Testament times, the Jews remembered that Pentecost was the anniversary of when Moses received the law on Mount Sinai, meaning that Pentecost is the anniversary of the Old Covenant. So this means that Pentecost, the anniversary of the Old Covenant, is when God chose to introduce the New Covenant 
through the power of the Spirit, symbolizing that with the coming of the Holy Spirit, there was now a new way to know and live with God, not in trying to follow a written list of laws, but now by living a life of being prompted by the very person of God who lives within us. And so this is what Paul writes about it in Acts, or sorry, in Romans chapter 7, Romans chapter 7, verse 6. Romans chapter 7, verse 6. And the PowerPoint is the NIV, and I don't know why I did that because I'm reading out of the ESV. But here's the ESV. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code. Today, if you are a follower of Jesus, then the Spirit of the living God is residing within you to guide you and teach you and empower you and grow you as part of his kingdom. That's the good news. So are we living out this new life of allegiance by trying really hard to be good? Or am I submitting myself to the Holy Spirit's control that he may birth his love within me? If you get nothing else out of today, what I want you to hear is that the core of this Christian faith is the call to repent and turn to Christ, that our past can be wiped away so that we may receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and be made into new people. That's the promise that's been made to us. And the person of the Holy Spirit is the power source which makes this new life in Christ possible. So, am I allowing him to control me? Reunion with Christ requires us to repent. It calls us to be baptized. It promises us the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the fourth thing I want to highlight is that this promise is for everyone. This promise is for everyone. Verse 39. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. I have a friend in our college and career group who about every month or two emails me a question that goes something along the lines of, is God's forgiveness really available to everyone? Every couple months she gives me an email and says, you know, is God's forgiveness really available to everyone? And I don't know if she's concerned about herself or if she's concerned about a family member, but she's consistently struggling with the fact that God's offer of hope and renewal is available to all. Yet that's exactly what Peter says here. The promise is for all who are far off. Now, when Peter said this, I think I need to be clear, he was almost certainly still stuck in his cultural understanding that the promise of God was only for the Jews. It would still be another six or seven years before he would preach at Cornelius' home and witness the Holy Spirit descend on the Gentiles. And so when he says this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, Peter is thinking about his Jewish audience and their descendants and the Jews in dispersion around the Roman Empire. In Peter's mind, God's promise is still only for the Jews. But even as we search the Hebrew scriptures, we see that this is just not true. And so I'm just quickly a couple verses. First, right at this beginning, at Genesis 12, Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. And again, this is another verse in the NIV, and I don't know why I did that, but I'll read it in the ESV, and you can pick which one you like better. Now the Lord said to Abram, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, um, switch with me to Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49, about halfway through your Bible. Isaiah 49, verse 6. And I'm going to be reading the second half of verse 6. 
And this is what it says. I will make you, and he's talking about the Israelites here. I will make you, Israelites, as a light for the nations. Why? That my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. You see, God didn't just randomly choose Israelites to bestow favoritism upon them. Instead, they were chosen for the primary role of leading all the other nations, all the other nations, all the other people of the world to Yahweh. And so later we read this prophecy in the prophecy of Joel, Joel chapter 2, verse 32. Joel 2, verse 32. And these are the very words that Peter quoted earlier in his speech. And this is what it reads. And it shall come to pass that everyone... Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. God's offer of reunion is for all people. And so even in Peter's ignorance here, the Holy Spirit led him to say, verse 39, the promise is for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And these words were penned by a non-Jewish doctor named Luke. The promise of salvation in Jesus and the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit is available to all of us. So how have we responded to this offer? Here's how the crowd responded to the offer. Verse 41. So those who received this word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 Jews submitted themselves and took the revolutionary step of baptism that day. So how about us? How have we responded to Jesus? What is my primary allegiance to? As some of you know, I used to play a little hockey, and one year I was playing in the minors. And, uh, and so we're in the playoffs, and playing a playoff series against uh, a former teammate of mine named Pat. And so early in the series, actually early in the first game of the series, uh, lining up at a face-off, and Pat lines up beside me, and he looks over and he goes, Kel, I'm thinking about becoming a Christian. We need to talk. And I go, seriously? Yeah, yeah, seriously, we need to talk. And he skates off. And I'm going, what the? And so he kind of skates off. Now, unfortunately, his coach had threatened to ruin their careers if they talked to anyone on the other team. And so we couldn't talk for the entire playoff series. So finally, at the end of the series, uh, we win. And so we're lining up. We're lining up, thank you. We're lining up and, uh, for the handshakes. And so I go to the back of my line and Patty goes to the back of his line so that we'll have a, f- a few moments to talk. So we, we finally meet and I go, hey, what's going on? And he goes, so I've been attending this Bible study and I'm thinking about becoming a Christian, but uh, I need to talk to you because really you're, you're the only Christian I really know. And I go, well, great, how can I help? He goes, well, I can't talk now. The coach is still watching. So, so I'm gonna be in Calgary in a month, so I'll call you when I'm there. And I go, okay, great. So the playoffs, we play the rest of the playoffs, losing the finals. <sighs> Anyways, and so after the year's over, so come back to Calgary, and sure enough, about within a week, uh, Patty uh, comes visit Calgary, and so I saw him several times that week, and we went out several times, and essentially, um, when we met, I just listened to Patty as he debated out loud whether he should or shouldn't follow Jesus. And kind of the heart of the matter was, uh, Patty knew that he had no chance of making the NHL at this point. But his dream now was that one day that he could become a general manager or an executive in the NHL. And his fear was that if he became a Christian, that this would um, hurt his career path. And you know, back then it probably would have. And so this is kind of what Patty's wrestling with. And, And so we talked about it several times. And finally, Patty had to go back to his home. 
And, uh, and so as he was leaving, I kind of said, listen, Patty, um, at some point you're going to have to choose. You can only have one God in your life. And so you're going to have to choose whether you want that to be the God of creation who loves you, who desires to adopt you as a son and fill you with his love and his power and his strength, or whether you want that to be your career. And Patty goes, I, I, know, I know, I know, I know you're right. I need to choose. And he, so he goes, I need to think about this. And he goes, so I'm, I'll call you next time in Calgary. I go, great. I never heard from Patty again. My friend chose what was going to be the God of his life. How about you? What is it that claims your primary allegiance in life? Is it Jesus? This weekend, we're going to conclude a little differently than usual. We're going to give you the chance to respond to Christ's offer. So perhaps you're here today and you've never really repented. You've never really declared allegiance to Jesus. Or perhaps you're here and there's a specific issue in your life that you're cut to the heart about, something that you want to repent of or you want to pray of. Here's essentially what's going to happen. I'm going to pray, and when I, after I'm done praying, I'm going to release Mosaic back to Jane. And while I'm praying, while music is being played in the background, you here at Evergreen, we're going to invite you to come forward. And you're free to come forward and either pray by yourself or there will be some pastors or care team leaders or elders here to pray with you if you'd like. Um, and either way, we just invite you to come and lay your burdens at the feet of Jesus. Now, I just want to say that I recognize that there's probably some of you, maybe many of you out there that are kind of going, well, there are things I need to pray about, but, but I don't want to walk to the front of the auditorium and pray with somebody else. And I, I understand that feeling. And honestly, I am as private about personal matters as anyone you'll ever meet. And you can ask anyone I work with. But I was reading this passage, and I talked about how Peter challenged these Jews to get baptized, even though that was totally against their understanding. And 3,000 of them submitted to a Gentile act. And if those Jews could submit to a Gentile act, then I think we can probably walk to the front of an auditorium. And so, like I said, I'm just going to pray. And if you're sensing that God is tugging at your heart, then please come forward. All right? Let me pray. Eternal God, our Father, again, we thank you for Scripture and for your message of hope and renewal. And I just want to pray for my friends out here. And I know that, uh, I know there are many needs. And I know that there's many uh, undergoing serious medical illnesses. I know there's many uh, family and marital struggles going on in our body. And I, and I know that there's many out there struggling with habitual sins. And Father, I just pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that, um, that you would meet these people where they're at, that you would meet them in their need, that you would, uh, in tangible ways, give them a sense of hope and healing and renewal, and that you could meet them in their moment of need. Father, I pray um, for those who here have never bowed their knee to you and are like my friend Patty, are kind of trying to figure out what they believe and who they want to follow. And I just pray again by your spirit that you would reveal your love, that you would call them to yourself and reveal your good plans and your purpose for them. And I just pray overall that this place here could be a place where we are free to hurt and are free to be needy and that where we can come and we can receive your comfort and we can be transformed by your spirit to be your church.
and to be a lighthouse of hope to this hurting world. That is my prayer. Oh, may that be so, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.